Good to see you guys. Uh, my name is Andrew, and uh, I serve here at the church as one of the pastors. Uh, and I'm excited to, to have you guys all in the room this morning. I'm excited to be going through this. Um, I don't know, did anybody have fun last week over Easter Sunday? Did we have a good time? Well, I, I will say this. Um, I'm going to be honest. If, if you are not here, I usually don't want to like, make you feel bad, but you missed out. If you were not here last Sunday, it was... It was a joy. Like we got to sing. This whole building was just full of voices just singing. We got to meet new people. We had new friends from the neighborhood show up. We got to hear the story of the greatest day in history. I mean, it was a joy. And then we got to go pound some ham and pie afterwards, which was awesome. Our, uh, my city group, actually, at least the guys, we spent probably too much time discussing the meal that we had afterwards in the text, but it was a good, it was a good day. Um... Now this morning, as you've noticed, as we've said, we're kind of shifting our focus a little bit from the Gospel of Mark, which we've been in for a while, which tells the the story of the life of Jesus. And now we're shifting to a new series uh, that you can tell we have creatively called Joel. All right. So if you're wondering why it's called that, that's the name of the book. And so we put our best minds to it, and we came up with Joel. Now, uh, I want to say this early, because if you have a Bible, I want you to flip to Joel. And I'm telling you this early in the sermon, because I fully realize it may take you a little while to get there. So, no judgment here. You go to the table of contents, you find the page number, and you flip to Joel, and then you just you stick your little ribbon or a piece of paper in there, so you're ready to go for the next few weeks. Um, and as you're, as you're flipping there, I, I do want to just say... Um, I want to give you a couple reasons why I'm excited that we're preaching through Joel for the next uh, seven weeks. Because uh, as I've talked to a few of you over the last week, as we've kind of said that we're going to be preaching through Joel, I know many of you have said, oh man, I've, I don't think I've ever read that book. Or it's been a few years since I've even looked at the book of Joel. And we realize that this is a little bit of an obscure book maybe to us. It's a little bit confusing or out there. It talks about locusts a lot, which is why the graphic has bugs all over it. Uh, And it can be a little bit tough for us today to hear a chapter like we just heard and think, man, that is for me, right? I mean, it can be a little bit difficult. But let me tell you why in our first year as a church plant, we're spending seven weeks in the book of Joel. The, the first reason, there's two reasons I have. The first one comes in the very first verse. So if you got to Joel, scan down, look at verse 1. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. The first reason we're studying Joel is simply that this is the word of God. right? The book of Joel, as confusing as it might seem, uh, is the very words of God. You know, when we believe that this whole Bible, the whole book, is God's word. And 2 Timothy 3.16 says that that word, God's word, is profitable. It's good. It's useful for us today. And so we believe that if Joel is God's word, then it has something of profit for us this morning. Right? So we believe that we're doing a disservice to our church if we never go back to the Old Testament because it seems a little bit weird. It's God's word and it's profitable. But the second reason is not just because it's God's word, but I think that Joel is actually extremely applicable for us today. You know, the the whole message of Joel, the the whole theme of his letter or his prophecy uh, is that the people of God need to turn to the Lord. 
right? So if you're, if you're a note taker or you got it in your Bible, you're writing your Bible, right? Turn to the Lord. That's the theme of Joel. His whole plea, chapter after chapter, uh, is going to be that we need to be a people that turn to the Lord. You know, biblically, we have a word for this, and it's just called repentance, right? It's the idea of turning away from sin and turning to God. And what we're going to see through Joel is, is how we do that as a people, what the benefits are for us if we turn to God, how we can find life and joy, salvation and satisfaction if we turn to the Lord. And so I want to preach through Joel because I believe it's God's word and it's very applicable. It tells us how to find joy in God. So that sounds all right, right? We can do that? Okay. If you're uh, more of the inquisitive type and you've got follow-up questions like, who is Joel? And when was this written? And what's the context exactly of what's going on? Uh, For you, I would say good questions. Not many people actually know. It's a little bit vague, and so uh, we don't know all of the specifics. Uh, But some people have said over the years that uh, they kind of think that's on purpose. That, That Joel leaves this vague because the reality is the truths in Joel are timeless. They're as good in the 9th century B.C. as the 2nd century B.C. as they are today. And so we're going to preach through Joel, even though it's a little bit vague, and even though it might be confusing at first read, because it's God's word and it's profitable. All right? So with that, you ready to jump into the series in Joel? You guys excited? Some of you are like, no, I don't think so. But we're going to do it anyway. So let me pray first for us, and then we'll jump into chapter 1. Uh, God, we love your Bible. We love your word to us. We are grateful that you do not leave us stranded. You do not leave us wondering um, who you are or what you want or what life should be like, God. You have given us your word. Uh, And so, God, I pray for us this morning uh, that we would begin to love uh, even a, a, a prophecy of thousands of years ago. A word that maybe at first glance seems confusing. God, would you speak to us through it this morning? God, we trust you. We pray that you would give us sharp minds and soft hearts as we come to Joel 1 this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Providence, what do you do when things go bad? What do you do in your heart? and your mind, and your actions, when life gets hard, when, when things get a little bit tough, what do you do, what is your response when suffering comes, when, when hardships begin to build up? You know, I was talking to a friend of mine at a, a coffee shop a couple weeks ago, and uh, the guy, he, he grew up a little bit in church, and uh, he knew a lot of Christians, but he wouldn't classify himself as a Christian, and so we've had multiple conversations over the last few months, and uh, as I was talking to him, we were talking about something, and, and he kind of, uh, kind of opened up a little bit at one point, and he said, you know, Andrew, my biggest issue with Christianity is that you call God good. He said, I don't know how you call good when I look around and all I see is bad. <laughs> so I don't know how you can call good, yet in my life I just feel pain. You say that God is good and close and near and loves me, but I just feel like God is distant, like life is hard, and that this whole thing just can't be true. You ever have thoughts like that? 
Or maybe you ever have a conversation with somebody who, who says, Man, I can't believe in Christianity because I just look around and I see evil and I see suffering and I don't know how God can be good and life can be so hard. You know, I think for us, it's actually probably one of the hardest questions that the church gets, right? It's one of the biggest doubts maybe that sometimes creep into our minds. You know, I think it's tougher than some of the scientifical paradoxes that sometimes we get into or the philosophical nuances of Christianity and a creator and all this stuff. I think things like this are actually even harder because this isn't an ethereal idea. This matters to our hearts, right? And this matters to real people. The idea that we consistently say God is good, yet hardships are always coming. So the question for us then this morning that I want to look at is, what do we do when things go bad? <laughs> when, when suffering comes, how do we make it? What is our steps? What do we have to do? I think Joel 1 is going to help us answer that exact question. I think Joel 1 is going to help shape for us what our response should be when life gets hard. And I think, um, maybe you can tell, I think this matters a lot to us this morning. Not just thousands of years ago, but, but to us. And I think there's probably some in the room today that you kind of feel like you're in the middle of that season. That that question's actually been bouncing around. You feel like suffering's kind of enveloped you. Hardships are all around you. And, and maybe you need to hear God speak to you this morning to tell you, what do I do when life seems so hard? Or if that's not you and you're thinking, Man, I don't feel that right now, I want you to know that unfortunately that, that time's probably coming, right? I mean, most of us have lived long enough to know that hardships and trials and suffering is it's inevitable. And it's unfortunately probably fairly imminent. And so what do you do? I want you to, to take this message and kind of tuck it away in your heart so that when that day comes, you're prepared and equipped to walk through it. Or at the very, very least, maybe you have friends in your life, hopefully, who, who aren't Christians. And, and when life gets hard, I want you to be equipped and ready to help preach the gospel when life seems hard. And the question, how can God be good and life be so bad? When that comes up, I want us to be equipped for it. So um, if you're not there, go Joel 1. I think he's going to call us to do two things when life gets hard. All right, two things from Joel 1 that we're going to see when life gets hard. The first one is that we need to remember that God is sovereign. And the second is we need to remember that God is Savior. All right, remember God is sovereign and remember God is Savior. So if you've got a Bible, Joel 1, I'm going to start in verse 2 now. Just read the first couple verses. It says this, Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children, and their children to another generation. For what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten." So the first few verses, this is kind of setting the scene for really the rest of the book of Joel, all right? And as far as context and where we're at, what's going on, that's about as good as we are going to get. And so in verse 2, Joel is telling, he's saying, hey, I want you to tell all the inhabitants of the land, everybody, right? Man or woman, old people, young people, fathers, mothers, whoever you are, you need to listen. You need to hear, he said, I want everybody's 
attention. And then he asks this question. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your father? He's saying, what we're seeing right now is unlike anything else that we've ever seen. He said, the rhetorical question is basically begging the answer, no, we've never seen something like this. And for me, that's a bit hard to fathom, right? Like, uh, if you remember, I don't know if many of you like history. I, I was, we have some smart people in here, so you probably did. I was kind of an average student, so I didn't really like history that much. But, um, but I remember going through history class, and, and whether you like it or not, you, you look at it, and what you kind of learn is that really nothing is new, right? We see maybe new expressions but they're just kind of cyclical events, right? So we may see a new war, but we know wars have been happening forever. We, we may see people fighting each other, but we know that people have been doing that forever. You may see people helping each other in, in a different way, but people have been helping each other for years. You know, we, even political things, right? I mean, there's really nothing that's brand new. I, I don't know if any of you guys followed March Madness, but I remember I read this one article and they said, man, this is ushering in a new time in basketball. We've never seen upsets like this. And I'm like, well, we kind of have, right? I mean, there's the one that's like the newest one, but I mean, most tournaments have big upsets. Like this is, it's a new thing, but it's kind of the same old thing. We constantly see history just repeating itself in new ways. But in Joel, he's saying, Nothing like this has ever happened. This is the first, the biggest, the only thing like this. And so he says, you're going to tell your kids about this. And they're going to tell their kids about this. And they're going to tell their kids about this. And frankly, we know that's kind of true, right? Because we're talking about it thousands of years later, which is kind of cool. So that actually happened. But look at what was so devastating. Look at verse 4. He says, what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust has left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left... The destroying locust has eaten. So essentially what they're facing is this huge invasion of locusts, all right, which to me seems very weird and gross, all right? So I was reading this this week, I'm like, this seems strange, and I didn't really know what that would look like, Uh, so I did some research this week into uh, swarming locusts, uh, and it was a little bit crazy. So locusts, if you don't know, they kind of look like this, so they're kind of grasshoppers, essentially, you can think, Um, but what they do is they form these swarms, and it can be up to millions of these locusts in a swarm, Now, what would happen is there's pictures, you can look it up, uh, of where when these swarms would kind of fly in, it looks like just giant dark clouds kind of moving. I mean, it would literally like blacken out the sun. They were so thick and there were so many of these locusts. Now, in 1889, one of the most devastating locust swarms uh, recently hit, and they said that there was a 1,200 square mile uh, just covered in locusts. Now, for reference, 1,200 square miles is almost the size of Rhode Island, which, granted, is a small state, but it's the size of a state, right? And this is huge. They said there's upwards of 120 million locusts in this 1,200 square mile. It's disgusting, and uh, it's gross. Now, I like, when I was reading this, I was like kind of crawling, you know, like, ugh, I don't want these locusts. But anyway, the most devastating thing is not just that they're gross or not that there's just millions and millions and millions of them. The most devastating thing is what they do is as they sweep through the land, they will destroy everything. I mean, they eat crops, they eat plants, they will destroy anything. And we see this throughout chapter 1. So in verses 5 and 7, it says that their vines where they grew grapes and got wine from, it said it's all eaten up. Verses 8 and 10 says the wheat and the grain that they had in the land 
all destroyed. Verses 11 and 12 says the soil, the trees, the crops, everything that they had ruined by these locusts. So Joel 1, he's setting the scene that's saying everything in our land is being destroyed. Everything. Everything is gone. Now, for us, when I'm reading this, I kind of joke about, man, that, that would be gross, right? You think about 120 million locusts, and that's weird and, and gross. For an agricultural society, this isn't just gross. This is like a matter of life and death, right? I, I mean, a majority of us, we're not farmers, so our livelihood is, is not based on cattle and, and crops. But uh, just think about it this way. Um, in October of 1929, uh, we had an event that would later be called the Great Depression, right? You guys are smart, you're history buffs, unlike me, so you knew that. The Great Depression comes October 1929, and what happens uh, is basically the, the stock market crashes, the banks close, people lose their savings, people lose their jobs, a lot of people lost their homes, and what began was that so many people were utterly destroyed because their livelihood was basically gone. Now imagine if that were to happen today. So imagine for us, uh, the savings that you've been kind of building up, gone. The, the investments that you've been working towards for a few years or for a few decades, completely gone. The job that you have to, to make, have a house, to have a roof over your head, to have food on the table, gone. Everything gone and destroyed. This is what the people faced in Joel's day. These locusts were sweeping through and destroying Everything. One commentator stated that this was not just an economic downturn for the people of Israel. They were actually facing annihilation. Like they could not survive year after year with this happening. So for the people in Joel's day, life has gone bad. Right? Things have happened. Suffering has come. Hardships that they couldn't prepare for have now struck. And the question then becomes, what do I do when life goes bad? What are we supposed to do when things get hard? And I think the first thing that we need to see uh, comes in verse 15. The very beginning of verse 15, he says, Alas, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. Do you see the mindset that Joel has here? He's seeing suffering. This is, this is a judgment of sin. He sees all of this happening, and he first remembers that God is sovereign over all. Do you see that? He says he doesn't seem to think that God is aloof or that he's distant or that he's separated from the pain and suffering of his people. Joel immediately goes to God and says, well, if this is happening, this must be from God to some extent. He says, the day of the Lord, which uh, we're going to talk about next week, so if you want to know more about that, come back next week. But he says, the day of the Lord, where there's going to be final judgment for sin, he said, it must be starting. This is so bad. This must be the beginning of God's judgment for sin. What he does is he remembers when hardships come, God is sovereign. And to to be sovereign just simply means to be in control, to have authority. He's saying, This isn't apart from God, but God still has control over this. I don't think there's anything that happens in life that isn't directly caused by God or isn't allowed by God. 
about everything. God has control over everything. He can do whatever he wants. Anything that happens in life is either caused by him or simply allowed to happen by him. And so I do want us to pause for a moment here, and I want this to, to really kind of sink in, because I think when, when suffering comes for us, this has to be our first response. Our first heart and mind shift has to go towards God being in control. When life goes bad, when you, when you lose the job, when that loved one passes away, when the, when the pregnancy test is still negative month after month, when, when the money just hasn't come in, when your child is still wandering, when the diagnosis comes back and it's terminal, when life goes bad, we must first remember that God is sovereign that God is in control, that our God has authority and control over all. And the Bible says that God doesn't just have control. He's not only powerful, but the Bible also says he is perfectly or morally perfect and good. And if you put those two things together, that God is sovereign and God is good, what that means then is that God does nothing or allows nothing to happen from him that isn't with a good purpose. That doesn't have some sort of good coming from it. And I think if those two things are true, then we see suffering in the world. We feel pain. We feel hurt. Not because God is not good, but simply because sin and the fallenness of this world is that pervasive. All right? It's not because God isn't good that we're hurting. It's because sin has that much uh, effect in our lives. Now, I want to make something clear before we move on. Um, I don't want you to mishear me in saying some of this and think that you have to go on some sort of um, witch hunt through your life to find what sin then caused all your suffering, right? I mean, I don't think that every single pain, every single hardship, every single hurt we feel in life is a direct result to our sins. So let me do this. Let me give you three things quick that I think... um, that suffering comes because of one of these three areas of sin. So when life goes bad, I think oftentimes it's because of one of these three things. The first one is sometimes we suffer because of our sin. Okay? So that's the first one. That sometimes your life is hard and there's pain and there's hurt because of sin in your life. Um, so think about it. If you were to cheat on your spouse and six months later you wonder why you're going through a nasty divorce, why your kids are crushed, and why life seems so miserable, it probably is a direct result of your sin, right? If you uh, have an addiction to alcohol or um, to drugs or to pornography or anything, and you wonder why relationships are suffering, you wonder why you lost your job, you wonder why life is so hard, it's probably a direct result of your sin. Sometimes we face suffering because of our sin. The second one, though, is I think sometimes we suffer simply because of others' sin, right? Sometimes we suffer. You see, we're so relationally connected, like we're just wired that way to be connected with people that sometimes we face hardships and we face scars and pain and hurt because other people have sinned against us. Uh, if, um, If you were abused when you were younger, uh, most likely that was not your fault. 
right? I, I mean, you were the victim of someone sinning against you. You didn't suffer because you did something to bring that on. You probably just simply suffered because somebody sinned against you. You know, maybe God needs to like press that in this morning, that if, if you're struggling with something like that, you need to know that sometimes it's, it's simply not your fault. Sometimes sin is done to you. If you're in a relationship with somebody who uh, just lashes out in anger and they have said things and done things that have been hurtful, uh, that may not be your fault. Uh, you may suffer and you may face hardships because somebody sinned against you. But the third one, the third category, I think, is that sometimes we suffer simply because of sin in general, right? Simply because of just general sin, that, that our world is so broken and fractured because of sin. There are some times that we face hardships just because we live in a broken world, right? And a lot of times we hurt just because we're still in this world where sin is that pervasive, you know, my, uh, my wife and I, we went through a, a miscarriage a couple years ago. And uh, looking back on that, I, I really don't believe that there was something that led to that in my wife or I that, that we just sinned and so God punished us and did this. You know, I don't believe that every time this, things like that happen, uh, that it's something we did. You know, so as we sat there and we shed tears and we felt the weight of that and we felt hurt and broken... Uh, I believe that that probably happened just because we still live in a fallen world. We just live in a world where bad things happen because sin is that pervasive. And you know what? In that moment, I remember when my wife and I were sitting in our kitchen in our apartment, and, and you know, we're, we're crying and we're just asking the question, like, why did this happen? You know, in that moment, I didn't need God to be a scapegoat for my anger I needed God to be sovereign in that moment. You know, when, when, in some of our lowest times, when I was hurting the most, I needed a God who wasn't distant from my pain, but had power over my pain. I, I needed a God who would, yes, let me feel the pain in the moment, but who I knew was greater than that pain in that moment. You know, I needed a God who maybe would allow me to suffer, but who I had, could have confidence in had a greater purpose in it, I needed a God who is not distant, but who is near and who is powerful. In that moment, I needed to know that God was sovereign. And maybe for you this morning, if you're feeling that, the answer is not that God is evil or God is distant. The answer is that, that sin is that pervasive in our world, but you have a God who is sovereign over it. You have a God who's in control of all things. When things go bad. We need to remember that God is sovereign. Joel wanted his readers to remember the first thing. This is happening, but God is still sovereign over it. There's one more thing I want us to quickly look at. Um, The good news for us this morning is in part that we have a God who's sovereign over suffering, that we have a God who's sovereign over our situations in life. But the even more good news is that while we know there's a God who's in control, there's another element to this. So look again in Joel. Uh, Let's start in verse 13. So this is Joel's call to action. So you remember God is sovereign, but then this is what he says to do. 
He says, put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. So consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. So Joel here, he's calling the priests, he's calling the leaders, he's saying, now what I want you to do is I want you to get everybody. In verse 14 it says, all the inhabitants of the land, I want you to get together, I want you to fast, and at the very end, in verse 14, he says, and cry out to the Lord. He says, when suffering has come, know that he's the one, that he's the one in control, gather together fast and cry out to the Lord. And so I think we need to hear this this morning, that it's not enough to believe that God is just ultimate king and sovereign and judge over all things. We need to know that when things go bad, that same sovereign God wants you to turn to him. That he wants you to draw near to him. In verses 15 through 20 then, I believe, is them crying out to the Lord. So the end of verse 14 says, people cry out to the Lord, and then 15 through 20 is them doing that. We see that in one place in verse 19. He says, to you, O Lord, I call. You know, as, the, uh, as our staff team, we work through these sermons the Monday before the Sunday. So this last Monday, we were working through this text as a staff. And uh, uh, one of our college interns, Jordan, uh, I she had this great insight. She said, you know, it's interesting in Joel 1 that they see God as the one who is either causing or allowing this suffering to happen. Yet they simultaneously see God as the only one who can save them from it. So you see, God is judge and king, yet he's also refuge. He's also their rest. He's also the one who brings salvation. You catch how beautiful this is. That, that yeah, he's the one who's sovereign, but he's also the savior. He's the one who's going to judge us for sins, but he's also the only one who can save us from our sins. He's the one who will judge the world in their sin, and he's the only one who can save the world from it's sin. He's the only one who ultimately brings destruction, yet he's the only one who can truly have power over sin and destruction. Now, how is this possible? Well, we now, today, look no further than the cross of Jesus, right? In Joel's day, they were just looking forward, hoping that God could do this, and today we have the benefit of looking back, And we look back 2,000 years ago and we see that Jesus, who is God the Son, not only created the world, but came into the world to save it. That Jesus not only is the great almighty judge that we will stand before one day, but he's also the only name that we hide under to be saved from our sins. Jesus is the king and he's also the lamb who was slain. He's the one who will receive praise and glory for eternity, and he's also the one who succumbed to death and destruction, who was mocked and beaten and torn so that we could be saved. And I think Jesus did all this so that when things go bad, we can turn to him. When things in life are hard, we can trust in him. When suffering comes, when you lose your hope, you can place your hope in him. I think the message of Joel for us this morning 
is that when life gets hard, we remember that he is sovereign, and we also remember that he is Savior. He's the one who, yes, allows us to feel pain, and he's the only one who can save us from it one day. So let me end um, by just getting a little bit practical for the last few minutes and just ask the question, well, then what does it look like to turn to him, right? This is Joel 1 setting up the rest of the book of Joel. We're going to kind of dissect what it looks like to repent and, and how that works. But just to give a broad overview this week, what does it look like to turn to him for salvation, Well, first, if you're listening to this and and you have never trusted in Jesus, if this whole message is new to you or foreign to you or you're skeptical of it, the biblical language, as I said before, is simply called repentance. And in the Bible, people are called to repent and believe, right? Repent and believe, turn and have faith. And so the first call is that you you need to believe, We need to have faith that one day you will face God Almighty to be judged for the things that you've done. And when you stand before that judge, you can either hope in yourself, you can hope that maybe your good deeds outweighed your bad deeds, you can hope that your sins were not too bad, or you can believe that Jesus took that cross 2,000 years ago to take those from you. You can believe that on the cross Jesus offers you forgiveness and hope and power and honor. And so this morning, would you believe? And the step after that is is to repent. To repent just means to turn. And so would you turn this morning from running after the things of the world and would you now run after the things of God? Would you turn from trying to get to God by yourself and would you now just rest in the fact that Jesus has done that for you? Would you turn from all of your hope and your satisfaction in your life being centered around yourself or the things here, and would all of that be found in Jesus? Would your life look different because you believe in Jesus and you've turned to now follow him? That's what it means to repent and believe. It's that God will judge one day, but he also is the one who can save. So maybe for you, would you believe for the first time this morning? But turning and repenting doesn't stop there. For, for us in the room that are Christians, you've believed this message. When things go bad, when life gets hard, would you also repent? Not in this doom and gloom type way, but just in the simple way of would you turn to the Lord? Would you turn from anything else that your heart runs to when hardships come, and would you just rest in God? Did you, know, did you notice it's, it's funny in Joel 1, the three things that he mentions that are destroyed, uh, in verse 5 it was wine. Now in that time, wine was a sign of wealth and satisfaction and kind of life to its fullest. And he says, that's gone. In verses 8 through 10, it's their offerings. It's their religious system. It's their way that they could kind of be right with God. He said, that whole system, that's, that's gone. You can't do that. In 11 and 12, it's their soil, it's their job, it's their livelihood. And he says, that's destroyed. Did you notice that all three of those things tend to be the things when life gets hard that we put our hope in? Maybe more satisfaction from the world. (laughs) Maybe some sort of religious deed that we could do to kind of appease God. Maybe our jobs and our careers and our families and our livelihood. All these things we tend to put our hope in. God removes them from us so that you would turn to God. And so for, for you in the room, if you're a Christian this morning, 
would you maybe just consider when times get hard, where do I tend to go to put my hope in? Would you just ask yourself, where, where do I run to when things get hard? And this morning, would you repent? Would you believe that God is greater? Would you believe that your hope is more firm in him? And would you believe that he one day will rid the world of pain, will rid the world of sin, will rid the world of destruction and suffering and hurt? And for all those who have their hope and their faith in him, we will be made new. We will face glory for eternity. So this morning, we're going we're gonna to respond in communion. So I'd invite the band up. Um, but instead of me praying right away like we'd usually do, I want to give you just 15 or 20 seconds, uh, maybe in silence, to, to kind of pray through this. Uh, if you maybe have something in your life that you can see your heart tends to turn to, would you repent this morning? Would you confess that? When things get hard and you begin to stray from God, would you just confess what that is in your life, and then we're going to take communion. I'll lead us into that in a moment. So just take 15, 20 seconds uh, to consider and to repent, and then we'll come and take communion. As you're praying over this this morning, I want you to know that when you come forward to take communion, um, you're, you're, you're participating in receiving God's grace and God's power for you. So no matter what sins you've committed, no matter what sins have been committed to you, and no matter what hardship that is facing you in life, just because we live in a fallen world, when you come forward, you can know that your heart can be satisfied in Jesus. Your heart can be forgiven in Jesus. You you can offer forgiveness in Jesus. As you come forward this morning, uh, I would ask that anybody who's placed their faith in Jesus would come, and as you take the bread and you dip it in the juice, whatever that is in your heart that you tend towards, uh, would you let this be a, a reminder for your own heart and soul that God is judge, but he's also Savior. He's sovereign over your suffering. He's the one who one day will wipe it all the way. And so if you are a a believer in Jesus this morning, I'd invite you to come forward. The communion servers can uh, come up at this point. Um, And whenever you're ready, whenever you feel ready, when you've kind of confessed that and you need to receive the grace of Jesus Christ, um, come up. You can come down the middle aisles. The servers will be up here. Uh, We're going to sing as we do this. Um, Also, I'll be in the back. Jared will be in the back. If there's something pressing on your heart this morning, or if God's stirring anything, uh, I would just invite you, come back. We would love to hear about it. We'd love to pray with you. Um, So come forward to take communion whenever you're ready. We have a gluten-free option in the back. Otherwise, you can head to the back and receive prayer if you'd like that as well. Mm